Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Are you accusing me of falsifying my data? The great Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're just going to talk about a few of our favorite things. There's no way we can get into a huge fight on this episode, right? What fight? I don't know what you're talking about. We never fought. We never yeah, we... fought. Tamler loves me. Tamler, Tamler is the best. I think we, we scarred some of our listeners. I, you think? Because I think, uh, you know, I, we got a lot of tweets and emails to the effect of, I want to hear that fight in it. <laughs> its entirety. Yeah. In its entirety? It's yeah. because our listeners are assholes. <laughs> I, I also think that they, that they don't understand how virtually substance free it was. I think they thought it, that it, they right, were like deep content. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it was just, it, it was like, two married people arguing over whether there are crumbs in the margarine. That's what it was. It was like two married people. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, maybe we should just, yeah. this is a, you know, a charade right now. That, I, yeah. we're, really what we have to worry about is not same-sex marriage. It's the bigamy laws. <laughs> but, you know, as people said, once you allow same-sex marriage, next step, bigamy. And then the next step, and I'm looking forward to this one, is the animals. Um, yeah, totally. I got my. It's in. It's inevitable. It's the. It's the arc of morality. Uh, I've got my eye on this labradoodle, and I just need that slippery slope to just you know pick up some I speed. Mean, as soon as I realized that free will doesn't exist, I was like, sweet <laughs> labradoodle. It's labradoodle sex all day, every day. So today's episode is going to be. Um, the theme will be just things we like. We've done this once before, um, and we really wanted to do it again. We thought summer is a great time to to do some recommendations. So what we're going to be talking about is a favorite uh, book, favorite movie, favorite TV show, and a favorite academic paper. That are psychologically or philosophically relevant, right? <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, speaking of sex and speaking of our some of our favorite things, um, I've mentioned before in the podcast that I'm a huge connoisseur of these articles that say that drinking isn't bad for you. You can drink all you want. You can have like two bottles of wine a day and <laughs> you're going to be fine. It's even healthier. But now we may have something even better. The recent edition of a great journal called, what is it, Eon? It's a, it's but it's A-E-O-N. A-E-O-N. Yeah. Right. And this is an article that says that porn isn't bad for you. Kind of in our wheelhouse right here. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, I was getting a little worried. I remember back for uh, you know, a few episodes ago, we mentioned that we had raised, probably raised porn in every single um, episode, just all, all porn. Um, the, uh, so this is an article in Ian, uh, which is this, yeah, it's a, uh, a nice, you know, fairly young online, online magazine. And it's an article by Maria Konnikova, who I don't know if you've come across her articles before, but she's a really wonderful science writer. In fact, she has her PhD from psychology, um, PhD in psychology from Columbia University. And she's she's written a ton. We'll put show notes to she's she's great on Twitter as well. Um, And of course, you said this to me this morning. We're recording a little bit late because I just had to finish this. Uh, (laughs) So the title of the article is brilliantly pornocopia yeah and brilliant is strong so she opens this article i don't remember how old i was when i had my first encounter with pornography but i must have been around 10 the experience is entwined with the sound of the aol dial-up tone (laughs) i have a few memories the first memory i ever have was when i was a very small boy a next door neighbor came over and had i mean i must have been not even six. It was before school. And uh, he came over and he gave me what looked like a, uh, a, it looked like a black and white newspaper cutout. I don't know where he got it. And all it was, was boobs. <laughs> That's just it. That's it. And I remember liking it, but I yeah. still had no idea why. Uh-huh. I had absolutely zero idea why I liked that picture. When the Playboy channel came on, you tried to figure out like measuring your parents and how pissed they would be if they could see it uh, if they saw it on their cable bill what are the odds of that happening what are the odds that you could get away with it for a month somehow with a story or you know that they uh, you know, it's just like the whole was i was so i was so afraid that i, I don't think i ever ever even considered it but my friend did teach me and I, for all i know i mentioned this before on the podcast um this is the the brilliance of pre-digital cable where it was still analog and scramble channels would right. run. Yeah. 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 And you could actually, like, if I flipped it, I could actually see some scrambled porn. You know? I know. And you would do it, too. Like, and that was know. the thing. <laughs> the, the big problem for me was that I'll never forget this. Channel 39 was Playboy in my cable. Yeah. Channel 41 was Spice. Yeah, oh now, yeah. one of the ways that you could get sort of almost a clear picture is if you flipped back and forth. Like, for a split second, it might actually clear up. <laughs> like animation. Yeah. <laughs> channel 40 was the Christian preaching channel. Ah. So <laughs> you can imagine me flipping from 39 to 41. And every time I'm passing I'm through guilt. like the guilt. <laughs> the guilt. It's like some Southern preacher. Uh, but, but anyway, this, is, this article is, uh, yeah, Konakova is reviewing, starting with the question, like, does pornography actually have these all of the deleterious effects that people um now, now some of them are so she i also i like the what she starts out with this ted talk which i haven't seen but <laughs> sounds really annoying the way she describes it wilson who is neither a scientist nor a professor <laughs> is the founder of your brain on porn uh and pop the site that popularizes anti-pornography research and i guess the idea is that it's it's doing a bunch of things bad to us um but one of them is numbing us sort of making us not sexually excited to be with real people right 
And that can, in some serious cases, lead to erectile dysfunction. <laughs> um, but, but in general, it, it undermines natural sexuality. I, I like how, I like how that's one of like the, well, you know, sure, sure, like actors may get paid shit and actresses may get treated poorly, but like, but erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Therefore, porn bad. Yeah. Well, to be or fair, porn. the article is not about whether porn is good for the people who do it, who who no, are no, in, in it. The article is about whether consumption of porn is good for the consumers. Actually, at the end, she she points out that this should be what we are worried about, right? Whether right. the porn is whether the people are treated well, whether there's you know, um, but not, but yeah, the though TEDx talk that I haven't seen either is, um, you know, it sounds like it's. I mean, it's hilarious. He has this no, the no fap movement, um, <laughs> fapping being slang for masturbation. For those of you, that was not a, a term that I was aware aware of. Oh was, yeah, yeah, fapping. It's, yeah, yeah. It's like a. It's. I think it's just one of those internet terms. <laughs> fapstronauts, the self-styled fapstronauts. <laughs> There's 150,000 people who call themselves fapstronauts. I could safely say I'm not friends with any of those people. <laughs> I, as I like to call them, 150,000 liars. <laughs> Are you friends with them since you're friends with everybody? <laughs> Are you friend. friends with a couple of friends? All my friends masturbate. <laughs> it's like a requirement. Um, so, okay, so Konnikova says, you know, this sort of brain on porn argument, like, oh, you're going to get dulled. You're going to have it undermines natural sexuality. Um, it's, you know, there's often this sort of like, a, you know, you're getting this dopamine surge in your brain. It's just like, it's just like crack. Um, and you need more and more. And so she tries to review the evidence that whether, you know, to try seeking an answer to whether or not um, this there this is the case. And she reviews some. So we'll link to this. It's a good it's a good article in the sense that it, it talks about some of the studies that have been done. But as you might imagine, it's fucking hard to do these studies. You know, like even though I want to believe that it's not doing anything bad, the, the studies that have been done aren't the best studies. I mean, so what you show is that like <clears throat> porn actually makes you want to have sex more and <laughs> want to have sex with your partner. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to undermine sexual desire, but I, I think the goal of her article, as I understand it, is just to undermine some of the alarmist, you know, hysteria right. about pornography. I, I've heard so many people quote to me and now I know where it's from that this is, you know, a massive social experiment to have a whole generation of people on on porn um, right. who are, you know, who consume it. And I think she's right that, you know, I guess it is a little different in that it's so accessible to children in a way that it wasn't for us. But what's right. not different is that adults have access to pornography and you know it's a, it's easier and better now but it's not like there was a time in recent history where nobody could could get their hands on pornography right this is not a show about sex we're not but i you know i'd be interested to know if just even people are just masturbating more i can't imagine that that is true i if, if anything maybe they just and quicker i don't know better yeah <laughs> i mean it is you know it's like the mcdonald it's like you know meat has always existed M mcdonald's is a recent invention it's like I chipotle you know it's like maybe slightly worse for you but it's just a better all-around experience so right yeah, i want to do i do want to uh 
say, even though we're not a show about sex, it could be interesting to have a, a, an episode on sex. Um, so long yeah. as you, you and I, I want to give a little shout out to, to a friend of mine who is quoted in this article, Jana Brangalova, um, who's a psychologist at NYU who, uh, she studies sex and, uh, she, she has a quote here. Is she a we need to, or not? She's, she's not a fabstronaut. She is the absolute opposite of a <laughs> She says, we need to supplement pornography with non-porn sexual education so that porn becomes fantasy sex rather than a real-world template. Um, we need to give people permission to enjoy sex. Until we do that, they will go to porn because you can't kill curiosity. And that's that's true. And I, I wonder, and I'm sure you have for, for your children. I mean, neither of us have boy boy childs. Um, which makes it <laughs> I think there's which, a word for that I just it's not all this talk of pornography has me a little flustered um uh but you know like I think about my daughter who's 10 right and and she's just she has an iPad she has she's gonna be curious at some point if she hasn't already and she's gonna find something and yeah. the question is what do I want you know what what do I want her to be doing and not doing and I, I don't want her to see some crazy shit, you know, by crazy, I mean any sexual activities that are not what I would do. But I I have to have a realistic understanding that at some point, one of her friends or her, they're going to be like, I wonder what this is. You know, what's fapping? And she'll type in fap. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I guess uh, to me, you know, uh, with all due respect to your friend, the non-fapster or not, like it's always for me, at least it's always been very clear what's fantasy and what's real, you know, like yeah. uh, both for pornography and other forms of uh, excitement and arousal. I, I don't know if we need education really uh, about I, this like i think this is fairly for most people pretty intuitive like well, well there's it. one right there's one way in which to read what she's saying is is totally obvious but but a measured way of saying don't get rid of pornography just remember that sex ed is also important and i that's that's sort of probably obvious to all um, i guess i mean this i don't want to get into another huge fight I don't feel like I ever, I mean, I, I took sex ed classes, but I don't think that they were valuable to me in any way, shape or form. If, if Eliza never took a sex ed class, I would be fine with that. I, I just so, don't think they're necessary. I mean, I think they're probably necessary for a subset of the population, but I think for, I don't, I don't want to get into numbers uh, or percentages. Yeah. I just don't think that, you know, I, I can, for personal experience, it was like, things to joke about with your friends at school but it wasn't yeah like it, it might be that you you are in some sense uh saying what she might be saying which is if you're going to do sex ed you have to you have to include stuff that's more than just like and this is you know the mons pubis and this is the i used to think it was uh, called a vagina <laughs> i did because i grew up in boston and she gave us uh, she gave us sex ed. It was fifth grade. We had sex ed with Mrs. Doherty, and she's showing us the diagram. She's like, "This is a penis, <laughs> and this is a vagina." <laughs> now, during intercourse, the man ejaculates sperm up into the vagina, <laughs> and then later, a fucking baby. <laughs> comes out of the vagina you know maybe you can actually teach kids that it's 
that it should be enjoyable and and all that stuff that will never get taught it was never taught in my sex ed class um i yeah, you know, i guess we were never told like, like you pretty much know that it's going to be enjoyable like going in you don't need so like somebody telling you that hey there are facts though that you'd be surprised that some people just don't know right i don't know there i think there's a lot of room to improve discussion of sex um and uh, i think that that maybe uh anybody... certainly in our discussion of sex there's room for improvement <laughs> At least, at the very least, I can say porn isn't going away anytime soon, and um, I'm just glad. Just like no, it's always on the vanguard of every technological advance. If you want to know where the very tip of the like, (laughs) just the tip, just just the the tip. tip. You want to know where the tip is sort of teasing the (laughs) the vanguard of technological advancement. Look, look, look to porn, DVDs, you know, videotapes. All of that like is just the engine for all of those things. Yeah, porn and video games are always. Are, are always always at the forefront and they're always at the forefront of controversy about it too but you yeah. know similar I, kinds I, of controversy too about exactly. des- desensitization and all that uh speaking of something that and then we should take a break but i just want to i'm sort of on a mission to raise awareness about this my my daughter went to sleepaway camp actually for the first time on uh last week and it was f- just for five days five nights but it was the first time she's ever done it and it was for Girl Scouts. And we went to pick her up and we hadn't seen her or talked to her even in five days. Like I just hadn't spoken with her. So all we wanted to do is see her and, and take her home. And instead, there was like an hour and a half Girl Scout camp performance. This is like <laughs> at seven at night. It was like seven to eight thirty on Friday night. And it, and, and they'd been there for five fucking days and spent most of the days like riding horses and normal camp thing, going swimming. And yet they thought that, that it would be good to, to have <laughs> parents sit through a performance of them singing camp songs, then doing skits where they don't even know the words. And, <laughs> and, and you're just sitting there. And I, and I was just getting the fury was building so heavily within me. And then. And this is the part I, I think that, you know, the, I think parents can be complicit in this. Like, I looked around, and while parents, some parents were starting to get a little restless, like, what the fuck is going on? There were other parents who were just sort of laughing at what the kids were doing, and, and a number of parents videotaping. Like, what the fuck are you videotaping? Are, are you looking at what I'm looking? Like, you would want this to be like stricken from all the records expunged from your child any any record of your child's life and and i think that it's those people that allow something like this to happen it's those people who are smiling who aren't just glaring at those girl scout camp counselors that that make parents sit through an hour and a half thing and instead you're enabling them and so, so this is my th- call to the parents <laughs> to not have them do. You think the appropriate response to your kid up there doing a bad skid is to glare at the girl show contempt? <laughs> not, yeah, not not necessarily at your kid, but at the people. And you know, it's not most of the time. It's not your kid up there. Um, yeah. It's it's somebody else's little seven year old who's doing a dance from Frozen, where you know the fucking their dance moves because they're just literal interpretations of the word. If somebody's knocking on a door, they'll be knocking on a door. 
<laughs> if somebody is 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 saying the word four, then they'll hold up four fingers. I mean, like that's the fucking dance. <laughs> Number one, if you are a parent and you're in a two parent situation and have an opportunity not to go, resist the temptation to just wait. You know, see your kid three hours later. You don't need you. It's you don't want to go to this thing. But but for many parents, that's not going to be possible. And for those parents, you need to really try to take active steps to not let this happen. I want like a this, wristband for this purple. So like to, so that we so where where you stand on the Girl Scout skits at the end of a week long sleepaway camp? Yeah, a performance. I, uh, that's not a performing arts camp. You know, even then. <laughs> I think the solution is to pretend that you're videotaping it by holding up the phone and at the stage, but then just be looking at porn on your. Uh... <laughs> I honestly thought like it crossed my mind that if I started a small fire in the cafeteria where this was going on, they would have to stop the performance. And then if <laughs> I got caught, I would just track down one of those videotapes of the performance and a jury of my peers would acquit me instantly. <laughs> I'm 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 glad that Liza feels so much support from her father. <laughs> she, oh God, she knew <laughs> when we finally got her into a car an hour and a half later. Uh, she was like, "Oh, Dad, I knew you were not going to like that." <laughs> uh, All right, let's take right. a break. Uh, I'm glad yeah, we'll I got talk, that off my chest. And we'll come back and talk about things that we actually like. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, we'd like to take a moment to just thank you guys again for all the support, all the emails, uh, the tweets, the Facebook messages. Again, we read them all. We've been trying to respond. I've been trying, I've been trying to be a little bit better at responding. You so did, some of you, you actually, have been. Uh, you, you, yeah, you responded you know. to a few. I look at those things. Uh, I think, uh-oh, Dave's <laughs> email has been hacked. But then I see that it's you. <laughs> Dear sir or madam, thanks again. Keep keep. Keep them up, verybadwizards at gmail.com, at verybadwizards, at peas, at tamler. Um, and if you uh, would like to support us, there are a few ways to do this. One, uh, you can always give us a rating or a review on iTunes that we think makes more eyeballs find our podcast. Um, bump us up on the iTunes rankings. Bump us up on the iTunes rankings. I know. We're just those partially examined life guys just kicking our ass. How do you feel about that personally? It's just I'm not good. Not at all. Not we're just, <laughs> um, I mean, it was one thing early on that we were like the young, hungry rappers and they mm -hmm. were like the old established fat cat rappers. But now it's like, it's like they've snuck up to us and they just yanked our chain, like they yanked our gold chain, and we have like a big red rash around our neck, and we're just exactly. You know, and now they're yeah. bragging about it. It's, we're like Jaw Rule. <laughs> That's great. Um, so if you if you do want to support us in more in a more material fashion, you go to our support page, verybadwizards.com/support, 
And there you'll find that you can click on an Amazon link, do your shopping. Thank you for that. Actually, we actually, we've gotten a, a last two months, quite, quite a nice little chunk of change. Uh, you won't be charged more for your purchases, but you will um, send some, some change our way. Um, or you can just directly link. Uh, there's a direct button to donate on PayPal to us. And, and finally, our Teespring, our, our t-shirt campaign, our wonderful, very bad wizards t-shirt, uh, the campaign has relaunched. That means that enough of you placed orders that they are printing them and they're on their way. So if you want to do that, you can go to uh, teespring, dot com slash verybadwizards, and you can order yourself or your loved one or your, you know, your great grandma or whatever, uh, a Very Bad Wizards t-shirt and a little. Lara Wexler, I think, on our, our Facebook page posted a picture of her son in uh <laughs> We love those pictures, man. Every time I get a picture, I I feel so proud. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for all that you do and all the ways that you communicate with us. And, um, you know, we're a bit inconsistent in how we respond. And it's really just dependent on where we are, like what, like how busy we are. Um, It's dependent on whether or not we like you as a human being. (laughs) It's correlated directly with your worth as a human being. Uh, Okay. Shall we get to, to Yeah, what should we start with? Um so we so this is philosophically relevant article, book, movie, and TV show. You decide the I, order. Uh let's 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 start with movie. How okay. Oh wow. I'd rather get your pompous sort of name dropping of directors that I've never heard of out of the way. I was actually thinking we were gonna do movie last. Let's let's not do I don't I don't mind at all. But just you know, just don't fucking ask me. No, just you. All right. Now you said movie. I did say you choose. And you said movie. <laughs> so my movie is actually one that was recommended to us by a number of listeners. My, are these listeners were absolutely right. It's a fascinating movie. It might be a little bit too close thematically to Straw Dogs to do another Yoel <laughs> episode, but I, I don't think so. It's it's pretty different. By theme, actually. you mean just badness? <laughs> oh, stop it. I did that. Uh, yeah, no, I don't even want to re- rehash this. But this is this is a movie called Force Majeure that I believe is Swedish. It's one of the Scandinavians. The director is who I didn't know before, Ruben Ostlund. So he wrote and directed it, and it stars Johanna Kunk, jo- uh, Lisa Lovin Kongsley, Clara Wettergren. So a bunch of Scandinavians came out last year. It is philosophically psychologically packed with interesting questions and interesting themes it's also a beautiful movie to look at just because it takes place in the french alps on a, a ski resort in the french alps the whole movie is over the course of i think six days the composition of the shots are, are great the and the music and the snow and the they have these and this plays a role in the plot these sort of controlled avalanches that they do that we see uh at night at at nighttime um and during the daytime in one crucial scene to t- even talk briefly about the interesting philosophical psych moral psychological questions i have to give maybe what might be considered a mild spoiler. So if you're really spoiler phobic, the thing I'm talking about happens like 15 minutes into the movie, though. So we're not 
uh, you know, I'm not spoiling anything about the end. So it's this family that have that's gone on uh, a ski vacation. Clearly, the the father's kind of a workaholic, and and this vacation is supposed to be like he's not supposed to look at his phone. He's not supposed to, you know, he's just supposed to spend time with them. And they have a a first day of skiing that's nice, and they are, you know, the family uh, takes a nap, then has a nice dinner. And then the next day at lunch, they're eating at an outdoor place um, in the mountain. And there's one of these controlled avalanches. And and it, and it comes down and everyone's sort of taking pictures of it because it's really cool and beautiful to look at. And then it looks like the avalanche is coming towards the deck where they're, where they're all eating. And... At first, it's like, well, that's don't worry, it's controlled. This is just a controlled avalanche, nothing to worry about. But then it really does look like, okay, it is, and this is very well shot and very cool the way they do this. And then it really looks like that it's about to hit them. They're about to get covered with like 30 feet of snow. And right at that moment, the mother with the near the two kids she sort of like gathers them in to protect them and the father like and it's just very panicked chaotic moment just takes his phone (laughs) glasses and just books it the hell out he just (laughs) runs away from the avalanche (laughs) right at the moment where it's like it looks like it's about to hit and you think it does hit and and you hear them calling out to him and he's not there and then uh, it turns out that it's actually more like the, the steam or mist from the snow. Like they didn't actually get, like they, they, they're able to go back to their dinner, which is just a little wetter or their lunch. Sorry. They were able to go back to their lunch and then he comes back and the whole movie is about that family dealing with what happened there. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> With the father panicking and sort of just just ditching <laughs> like them, a coward, just like a- when I, I I knew about the premise before I watched the movie, but um, so so the the first like sort of obvious question is how much do you blame the husband? I mean, this it was clearly a split sort of second automatic decision. It wasn't voluntary, right? But but, but you this do raises a really interesting question, right? Because I mean, it's it. Voluntary in some sense isn't what we're judging him on. We're judging him on is whether his automatic reactions were the sort that a father ought to have. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. So you sort of buy that it wasn't like a conscious choice in any way. Right. Uh, Yeah. What we're judging him on is that he didn't have that natural protective throw your body on your family Right. Uh, and that he had the opposite reaction to right. that. It, it's pretty bad. Like it's 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 really it's really bad. It, the movie, which is has some slow pacing, but it actually works in this sense. It's excruciating to see how the children and the wife, who the wife is clearly upset by this, but they're Scandinavian, so they don't really talk about it for the first like. I don't know, seven, eight hours. They just don't talk. But because they're so upset, they just don't talk, period. And and then it sort of comes out. The father probably deals with it in the worst possible way. I mean, so the second interesting question, if we're past the question of how much do you blame this guy for just succumbing to this fear instinct at just the wrong time, is like how do you deal with something like that 
once it happens. You don't deal with it like the husband deals with it. But also, you know, like this is what I was thinking. I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have acted in that way. But I don't think any of us can be 100% sure. And what, what could you do to make it so that in that moment of truth, that hectic, chaotic moment of truth that you don't succumb to that reflex? <laughs> you know, I remember Zimbardo. I was talking to, to Zimbardo in the first Very Bad Wizard book. And in the end of the interview, we talk about he, – he talks about training people to become heroes in waiting so that when the time comes – that they won't succumb to some of the forces of the situation, but they'll actually be sort of more conditioned to act more heroically. Right. So like, what could you do to not, you know, not succumb to, to that cowardly but reflex? To tra- train yourself to, to, yeah. to be brave for the, for the people that you love. This is what what uh, firefighter and police training is all about. It's getting you to respond in the right way during those situations, and maybe they should offer something like boot camp for uh, for people, who are so, like where you have to like throw yourself into the fire to save your your. Uh, your I mean, it's hard. I never think. I always think with sort of pride. Oh, of course, I would you know jump in front of a. I asked my wife, I asked Jen, like, do you, do you think I would act that way? She said, no, no, definitely not. So at least she doesn't think. <laughs> this is why she would be extra disappointed when you find <laughs> Yeah. When, you when I just hightail it out. You, you were wrong. No, but you're right. That's a good point. Like with the firefighters and the police and the, and the police training, you know, this is, and, and soldiers, this is one of their, their, their goals. But you don't think about it for ordinary people. No, you don't. You just, you know, I wonder what, we always talk about the heroic people who do things like this, but um, there really should be some website that collects cowardly acts of, of <laughs> like, just like a, a, a clearinghouse for cowardly acts of people who you would expect to, <laughs> to have behaved otherwise. So that would be people people who who let their their family die no i agree like because it's more effective at making you reflect i i you know this was one of those movies that made me take a good hard look at i think if you're a a parent in this movie you're going to take a good hard look at yourself there's also really interesting sort of unexpected personal identity issues that come up later in the movie and here i don't want to spoil anything but you know there does come to be sort of a crisis moment um and 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 just unexpectedly sort of personal identity stuff uh comes into play and it also i'm really anxious for you to see it because it has a genuinely perplexing ending like a really I don't know how to interpret it. I don't know what to think about it exactly. <laughs> and I'd be really interested maybe at the end of an episode to discuss the ending, the sort of the last five minutes of the movie and right, uh, right. How, how, how you feel about it. It's not a perfect movie. You know, like I wish the characters, the all the characters, the w- husband, wife, the kids, the husband's brother comes in in the middle of the movie with a much younger girlfriend. The kids were little brats, kind of. They're not entirely unsympathetic, but they're, you know, I don't know. I have a soft spot for kids and <laughs> not for those kids in particular. But but it's really, really good. Well, good. I, that's, that's strongly recommended. 
Always. And thanks to the listeners who, you know, uh, it was on my radar, but the listeners sort of put, bumped me over into I, this is probably a movie I wouldn't have seen if it hadn't been for the listeners that to re- okay. recommend it. That's why we do this podcast for you to put clips of chips and to get movie recommendations <laughs> for you to fuck up those clips, <laughs> fuck up those clips. <laughs> you know, most people got the real version. Um, okay. My, Uh, for the record, I always I always played John, not um, <laughs> you did. Yeah, defying yeah, yeah. stereotypes, defying stereotypes because racism had been so bred into me that I didn't want to be <laughs> the darker skin. Well, uh, Jen, uh, my wife, was a big Eric Estrada fan, so you, <laughs> so in your quest to uh, to steal um, her from me, <laughs> no, when she finds out how cowardly you are. All right, so my movie recommendation, and and I feel, yeah, I, felt, I feel sort of less strongly about movies than you. I was having a hard time, and I remember I watched a really lovely film, just a good, a good, good, well shot, fun film that did make me think a bit. Uh, it's called Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter. Oh, and don't know it. Yeah, it's it's about a young Japanese woman who. So the movie starts off with this. She's she's living in Tokyo and she's clearly just depressed. One of the things I like is just how well it shows what depression can be like. Um, she is in a job as a sort of uh, uh, office assistant to, you know, this, this sort of asshole Japanese businessman kind of guy. Um, in an office where all the young women are office assistants, but she's 29. She's getting old. He's saying, you know, what are you going to do with your life? You know, all of the other office assistants are, are 22. Her mom is constantly telling her, when are you going to get married? Um, are you, are you dating anybody? Uh, and all she can do is just barely make it to work and go home, eat ramen noodles. Uh, and, and just, it's just, you almost depressed by watching her. Um, and here's what happens in the movie. She has an old VHS copy, uh, a really shitty, you know, when like the heads of your VCR were wearing out and it was staticky and you know, yeah. you're like, Oh no, do I get a, can I clean it? Whatever. She's constantly blowing into the videotape, the VHS cartridge. And it turns out that it's a copy of Fargo, the movie Fargo. And, uh, because her English is sufficient enough to understand uh, the words that are at the beginning of the movie, beginning of the movie says this is based on a true story, bloody, bloody, blah. blah, blah. Um, and you see her keep rewinding to a particular point in the movie Fargo. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you'll recall Steve Buscemi is, has a suitcase full of money and in the sort of snowscape of, of somewhere randomly in Minnesota, he runs over next to a fence and buries the money. And puts a little, uh, a little, what do you call it? The little snow cleaner for your car. Um, yeah. A scraper. He, he puts it to mark where he buried the treasure. <laughs> now, this is where you start realizing that maybe this woman isn't quite in touch with reality. Um, she's misunderstood. She thinks that this is a documentary and she thinks that somewhere in Fargo, North Dakota, 
there is actually a suitcase buried with all of this money. And her whole life becomes, she gets out of this depression by making her singular goal to find that spot in Fargo, North Dakota, where that money is buried. Because she sees this as the out, her out. She goes to the library and, you know, tries to steal an atlas, you know, so that she can get herself to Fargo. Um, so don't the whole they, movie is... Did she yeah. see the mo- the whole movie? Because don't they dig up the the, the money? I actually don't, that's a good question. I don't remember. And <laughs> and the, the, the But you do get very quickly that this... <laughs> This woman can't. I mean, there's a hilarious scene. Um, the director himself is one of the the actors. He plays a, a local sheriff in one of these just small little Minnesota towns, and uh, he's like, "But it's a movie, and it's fake." And she's just in her broken Japanese. The movie is subtitled for about the first third in Japanese, uh, in, with English subtitles. And then it switches over to English when she goes to the United States, and uh, it's like it's fake. And she's like, "It's not fake." It's not fake, you know, um, but for her, the singular the singular goal of her entire life has been um, to, to what she sees now to to. And, and so she's done a little diagram of the fence and on what <laughs> posts it is likely to be. And um, a, as a study in in depression and maybe bordering on on others forms of mental illness but it's it's a good it gives you this this real sense of what somebody is is like when when they're seriously depressed but you know she also goes on this little adventure with these characters in in the midwest who are really trying their best to understand at one point at one point the the cop um who is struggling really hard to help her out she literally has embroidered a map with the posts with little measurements because that's a um, he he takes her over to a Chinese restaurant because he thinks that, that they'll be able to translate Chinese restaurant. Like, I'm, Chinese. I'm Chinese, and she's like, I'm Japanese. Uh, so so that's yeah. funny. it's a uh, it's a really great. Came out 2014, directed by David Zellner. Um, it's an actress named Rinko Kikuchi. It's a really wonderful job. Can, what, is it available? Force uh, Majeure is available on Netflix. Okay. Uh, I had to rent. I had to rent Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. On, Quote unquote. I, yeah. I, Rent. I rented it on. <laughs> no, I really did. On um, my Xbox. I think it's on Apple TV. I don't think it's yet available from um, from Netflix. Oh, but Good I'm sure pick. It's, on the I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm it's great. You'll like add it. Add that to uh, my list. Yeah. Eighty-seven percent Rotten Tomatoes. So people, I think you uh, out hipstered me. I'm. I may have. I ran into this randomly. You know, just randomly. It's really. It's really well done. Really well done. All right. Okay. What should we do? You want to do book article? Uh, sure. Like, why don't we move to the more boring article? Okay. Well, my article is not boring at all. Yeah. It is an article I should have read a long time ago. It's so up my alley. Um, it's from the journal Philosophy, not the Journal of Philosophy, just the one word title, Philosophy. And it later was the title of a collection of the author's essay, Bernard Williams. So Bernard Williams's Philosophy as a humanistic discipline. I just read this recently, and it is music. It is sweet, sweet music. This is like the article version of <laughs> of that that vision that Judge Reinhold has in Fast Times at Ridgemont High of Phoebe Cates, you know? I don't remember. I, I think you do. I think you're lying. 
in any case, it's a beautiful, like I had to convince myself that it was real as I was, as I was reading it. <laughs> it I, we definitely should have linked to it in our Philocalypse Now discussion. Um, we'll probably link to it for this episode. Uh, it's, 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 it's an article about, broadly speaking, what philosophy should do, what it's doing well, and then the assumptions that people sometimes make that can that can make it go awry. The basic thesis of the article is that philosophy's job is, and, and you know, Simon Blackburn in our episode Philocalypse Now, he he made a similar point that it's it, like other humanistic disciplines. It's the goal is to make sense of of the world, but not in the way that science tries to make sense of the world. There's definitely in the article some reflection about the nitpicking that can go on in philosophy and why that happens. But unlike maybe me, he doesn't just complain about that. He offers a diagnosis and I think a pretty – like he offers an antidote, a, 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 a cure, which has a bunch of elements. Number one – he argues that we have to recognize that our inquiries, that philosophical inquiries have a history and a context and that we can't get around that. He quotes a great line about about Oxford philosophers who translate some Greek word in Plato <laughs> as obligation. Now, they didn't really have a, a word for obligation as we understand it, but they, but they just quote this, they translate this word as obligation, and then they go on to argue that Plato has an insufficient account of obligation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's this idea that you can have philosopher, philosophy divorced from the history that it, when it was written and the uh, historical and cultural context that he thinks we need to just do away with. He says philosophical inquiry isn't like science where the history is supposed to be at least irrelevant to the inquiry. He says our beliefs, and I couldn't agree more, obviously, our beliefs, our theories, our intuitions, they are in some sense, anyway, a product of our historical and cultural roots. Don't try to get out of that. Don't try to get around it somehow. Just accept it. So that's the first thing. But number two, he he says, you know, we need to stop thinking that's bad. We need to stop thinking that explanations that are culturally and historically situated and and local and and aware of of that of of the forces that are that are shaping them these explanations stop thinking that they're inferior to what you know some absolutist explanation would be in terms of making sense of our world stop if if our goal is to make sense of our lives and and our worlds stop thinking that explanations that are aware that they're a product of history and culture to, to, to some degree are inferior to explanations that could get around that if that were possible. Uh, he thinks that's an ungrounded assumption that these explanations can often be more valuable. They, they do more for us in terms of what we're trying to do, in terms of making sense of our predicament. That's essentially the, the, what he argues. And it's really beautifully written and just so, you know, can, so much up my alley right now that it's that I can't stand it. Right? Can I? Can I? Uh, I'm. 
I, I get the general point. I'm struggling to understand. Uh, does he give examples of the right kind of, so what is being explained and how contextual explanations are more satisfying? Um, he He's more criticizing a certain attitude that say that contextual explanations are less satisfying, that they're somehow debunking or they're somehow, right. they, they're self-undermining in some right, sense. Right. Um, so that's maybe, what, maybe just one of the things that you and I always get back to is blame. So you might have two two versions of, of a study of blame. The one that I tend to favor, which is I think I very much do fall into this, and maybe because of science. Fall yeah, I was into thinking you view. should read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely will. Uh, fall into a desire to understand the rules of blame in a universal sense, um, you know, and, and you are very much of the view that it doesn't make sense unless it's in context and in context blame might be something so radically different from what we say certainly he's against the idea that we should search for some sort of universal or objectively true conditions he doesn't talk about blameworthiness but uh you know the the article would the the thrust of the article would be that don't search for some uh, objective universal conditions for blame that are divorced from all historical or cultural context. So don't look for like the metaphysically true conditions about what blame is. That's a fool's errand. And there I'm in agreement with him entirely. And, you know, my recent work has, has certainly been compatible with that. And I think, you know, he would be fine with my relative justice book pointing out, you know, the ways in which culture has influenced our intuitions about blame and responsibility. I think he would he would think and, you know, he and he's done this, too, in a book called Blame and, and Necessity, focusing more on the Greeks. But I think the, 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 the other main point and this is it's good that you press me on this. The other main point that I think he's trying to make is that, OK, that said. Now let's look at blame in a liberal, you know, in a society that's influenced by the Enlightenment and French Revolution and 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 liberalism. And w- once you're aware that this is fairly culturally and historically local, it doesn't mean that it that 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 it's a, an inquiry that's not worth making or that it's somehow not enough. To try to make sense of our own understanding of blame, given who we are, given this moment in history and given where we live and how we've been influenced, it's still a good, it's still a really important thing and in no way inferior to try to to make sense of that. And I have to say, we haven't talked much about John Fisher's view of free will on this podcast we certainly it's come up but but he's he was on this pretty early on just restricting all of his work to liberal democratic societies you know right people who right. roughly share those kinds of intuitions and you know i think william's point in this episode is good that's fine you know like that's what we that's what we, <laughs> we should be doing uh, you just had a slip where you called it uh, his his episode <laughs> Sorry to know, know, yeah. It's all podcast. I, I forget. Yeah, it's all podcast. Yeah. No, 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 that sounds good. It just so happens that we liberal Western educated people got finally got it right. Got it right. You know, but. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so my my article is actually just picked one from a scholar that I I've really been liking, and and I think that you have too, uh, Guy Kahan. 
um, who I think has been doing doing pretty good work in moral psychology. I, I believe he's trained as a philosopher, but he's been putting out a lot of uh, a yeah. lot of interesting empirical work. And there is an article that I think you know for all of our listeners who are interested in moral psychology and you know uh, something that we've discussed to death. So I don't need to talk too much about trolley trolleyology. Um, but this is an article by Guy Kahan, Jim Everett, who is another great scholar. He's a postdoc. Um, Brian Earp, Miguel Farias, Julianne Savulesco, uh, called Utilitarian Judgments and Sacrificial Moral Dilemmas Do Not Reflect Impartial Concern for the Greater Good. In some ways, you can read this as a methodological critique, something. It's a fairly, I think it's a fairly devastating methodological I, critique, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I think it's just bigger than a methodological critique. I think that it yeah. points to, it points to an important conceptual a paucity of conceptual analysis in moral psychology and maybe in just general social psychology um that took us so long that that has made us focus so long on this narrow space of judgment um, which are the trolley dilemmas um and so in this basically just a, a set of studies and it's something that that dan bartels and i um have argued just with a different style of 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 data um, that there is, it's not just that some of these sacrificial dilemmas are perhaps, you know, one critique is that they don't, they don't predict whether or not, you know, some people want it to predict real world behavior. What he's arguing here is that it doesn't even distinguish utilitarians, um, because, right. uh, because one of the things and I was talking to Dan Bartels, by the way, who would be a great person to get on the podcast just yesterday. Utilitarianism is so much of what makes it an interesting view and perhaps a controversial view is the positive obligation that it gives us. Right. It's right. not it's not that people are like, <laughs> oh, you should kill somebody to save more. It's the, the disturbing part. And as you and I know from teaching this, the disturbing part is that I might have to give up my HBO subscription to save a starving kid. That's or really... like not send your kid to a good school to send <laughs> exactly. like, like yeah. to save like 500 other kids. Right. Or not, you know, treat your parents to your really nice dinner for their anniversary, whatever. Those those positive obligations are the ones that are more debated. And so basically across a set of studies, Kahan and, and colleagues show that that if you use these like should you throw the fat man off of the footbridge kinds of dilemmas, um, if it really is measuring utilitarianism, then you might expect that it would be related to things like donating money to charity, things that real utilitarians, for as much as, as I sometimes uh, you know, find the view non-intuitive and maybe not even the normative theory that I embrace, um, you cannot say that, that somebody like Peter Singer doesn't go way out of his way to donate money to to find the right sorts of causes and to fight for them and so you might expect that this is a good measure of utilitarianism that you would see that people identify more impartially with all of humanity um right. they might may do things like donate more of their money um, to charity and in fact you don't find that at all sort of consistent with what dan bartels and i found originally that that these scoring high on the utilitarian quote-unquote index by saying that you would throw the fat man um this is just related in one study shows it's related to subclinical psychopathy uh with an immoral outlook concerning ethical transgressions 
in a business context. Another study shows that it's uh, associated with less donation to charity, more rational egoism, less identification with humanity as a whole, um, and less less likely to think that you ought to help distant people in need, that you ought to self-sacrifice. That's um, really, I mean, that's what's yeah. so cool about it is it's not only that it doesn't, it's it's negatively correlated mm-hmm. with real exactly. utilitarian right. attitudes. It's measuring the opposite thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, wait, it's, <laughs> it's an irony where we've been using this as a, uh, and, you know, if Josh Green ever, ever, ever is willing to slum it and, and come on our podcast, I think this is something Not just that say he was going to come on, but actually... <laughs> Come on the podcast. Uh, I, I love you, Tom. You know, I'll, uh, I, I am going to be inter- interviewing Peter Singer for the book. And maybe I'll ask him about this because he's certainly. For the book, say, let's tell people this is the, the new, the new uh, edition of your book, Very Bad Wizard. Right. Yes, oh, the second good. edition. And it's got a ton of really good people. Like, I don't know how I got these people to agree to do it but uh susan wolf anthony appia paul bloom that i just I, assume that it's because they heard that i was a co-host of this podcast yeah yeah no definitely <laughs> um, anyway so i so i might ask him because he's also used some of this research but i would love to hear what josh green has to say about this right. stuff too right. and i it's a little almost troubling to think about because i think so much of his work is devoted to this, but you've been on this for a while. I can remember like two years ago, we did something where I, I don't, I don't remember the context exactly, but you were complaining about, I think it was the one we were bitching about our disciplines. And you were saying that like all of a sudden it's become that like if you f- think it's okay to masturbate <laughs> into a chicken, you're, you're a utilitarian. <laughs> You know, this is the one item measure of utilitarianism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you masturbate into a chicken and and now you're utilitarian. I think what a lot of them really are actually measuring is that you don't have a particular deontological intuition for whatever reason. This is right. Actually, at some point, I'm working on a paper right now um, with Dan Bartels and, and Paul Conway using a method that that Paul Conway and his advisor developed called process dissociation, where just the quick quick version is all of these dilemmas are measuring two things, whether you want to save the people or whether you want to push the guy. And those are two separate questions. And what it what these things seem to be picking up on is is really are you cool with pushing people to their death? Not whether or not you really care about saving people. And if you use this process dissociation technique you can see this. It's not that they're like, oh my God, five people. Cause you tell them 10 people and they don't, they just want to tell them one person or zero people. They probably just want to push the fat guy. <laughs> they're not. He's fat. Because <laughs> he's fat. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. Let's say you have a button in front of you right now that you could push. Speaking of thought experiments, you have a button mm-hmm. right now that you could push that would immediately impose a five year moratorium on all trolley problems and these <laughs> kinds of sacrificial dilemmas that have been dominating moral psychology for a while. Would you push it? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Guy Kahan and I were asked to go out to, to give a talk on trolley problems in psychology. And this was at Cambridge a couple months, uh, a month ago, maybe if that. And uh, I've, it one of our listeners actually tweeted out a link to the video i maybe maybe if i don't look totally dumb i'll i'll tweet out a link to it 
I found myself give, giving this sort of super ironic talk where I used a bunch of studies that I and others have done using trolleys to make these critiques. So I realized that if I were to do that, I would be preventing myself from publishing two or three things that are in my docket right now um, <laughs> that are using these to kind of uh, make to undermine make a certain. That, yeah. 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 So I but I think that I, I would be OK with that. I'd be okay just working on other stuff. Just I think I might and, too. I mean, and no, I, it and wouldn't no, have none hurt of those me professionally. Fuck a dead, dead chicken scenarios. None of that. Like, yeah. So all of those things. Just like, and I think it might be it. at the end of the five year period. It might be like you know when the kids in the Simpsons, Itchy and Scratchy, is banned, and they all go outside. They kind of rub their eyes, <laughs> yeah. and Beethoven's pastoral symphony is playing, and like they play outside and they do like all these healthy, really, really good things. That's that's how I imagine like moral psychology after like right. the. The right, band. like maybe we would start interviewing people about what they actually think, like having conversations <laughs> with them. You know, like, it would be really yeah. weird. Let's so, take a break, and we'll come back and do our our TV show and our book. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We are trying to start off your summer right by offering four recommendations, a book, an article, a TV show, and a movie that are in some way interesting to the fields that we work on. We're going to do book right now. And my book, I I came about this, I think I mentioned this on the podcast. I I loved the movie Ex Machina so much. I started to get into a big Alex Garland, who's the writer-director. And I I heard him interviewed, and he was talking about uh, doing a film adaptation of Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, and uh, and he and he was praising the book to the to the hills, and so I got the book on Kindle and I read it, and it is fantastic. I've I've never read a novel of uh, Ishiguro's before, um, and I I plan to pretty much read all of them. I hadn't even read Remains of the Day, um, but this is. This is, first of all, a beautiful novel, but it is wrapped up in a really interesting philosophical science fiction kind of thought experiment. <laughs> Let me just say one quick thing about the prose, because it really is, it's so, it's so unbelievably just pure and so simple and clear. You know, it's like a cerulean stream. Except he would never use a pretentious word like cerulean. It just flows. So even though it's not a writing style I would want to emulate, it is a writing style that I can admire uh, to no end. To set up the plot of the novel and what's interesting about it philosophically, I, again, I need to maybe do what might be considered a mild spoiler. I mean, 
because this is what I'm about to say. You you sort of you sort of you you come to figure out certainly long before the end of the book, but but it could be something that you want to discover for yourself. Uh, again, it was one of those things that I sort of knew about, and it, I don't I don't I think if anything, it sort of helped the reading experience, not harmed it, but. Anyway, mild spoiler alert. The premise of the book is it sort, it sort of takes place in like an alternate universe to ours because it, it's, you know, in the anywhere from the 60s to the 80s to the 90s. Um, it's, it's a movie that takes place over a bunch of years. But the premise is that that society has found a way to clone people and that certain groups of children are cloned and then raised to be organ donors. So what happens is they go to school. They don't have any parents because they're clones, but they go to school. They do all the things, you know, it's in some ways a very sort of loving satire, but also not a satire of the British uh, boarding school experience. So the first part of the book takes place in, in this boarding school, but it's a boarding school entirely of these, of these children. And then some point when they're really healthy in their 20s and early 30s they start to become donors and a few of them are selected to also be carers so they take care of the 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 other people who are donating their organs and you can usually get about one you know anywhere from one to four organs before you die the book is not really, even though that's the premise of the book and it's such a sort of, again, philosophical thought experiment, it's not really about that. It's not even really about the ethics of it explicitly uh, because that's barely discussed. It's really just from told from the perspective of three friends who are from one of these schools. It's kind of a love story. Um, between them and and whatever philosophy or ethics questions that you want to get out of it, you get just from thinking about it, not from anything the book does explicitly, which I think works really well. It tells a very human story about them with this premise as the backdrop. I don't know. There's so many interesting things about it. You know, you could look at it as a sort of reductio ad absurdum of utilitarianism to some degree in the way that Brave New World was, but maybe even more effective because it's, it would be hard to come away from that thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. We should do that. We should raise people. And it really, in some <laughs> ways, doesn't matter that they're clones. If you could just get people to agree to, right. you know, have sex and, and just, you know, and then they raise these kids. What I found also interesting personally, I've always defended eating animals that aren't factory farmed, you know, that, that grew up under good conditions and that, you know, uh, and, and one of the, my defenses f of that is, look, you're giving them this life that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Right. And yeah, it does get cut short, but until that point, they get to live a good life that, and, and they wouldn't have otherwise had a right. chance to do that. So that commits you. But to, that's totally true of these kids, you know? <laughs> it commits like, you to, to to endorsing sort of plucking starving children from sub-Saharan Africa who are going to die a miserable short death, like yeah. live a miserable short life and die an early death. There's definitely some differences. <laughs> the, the and, and a big one is that these kids know that this is going to happen to them and they right. know that there are this there's this world of people who it doesn't happen to so that's one sort of disanalogy there and another but but you know if, especially if you're a utilitarian that's 
uh, or or thinking about it in those terms, even in part, that's a that weighs against it, but it still doesn't shouldn't necessarily weigh against it uh, too much. Right. Right. And, uh, right. Or and maybe actually an empirical question: How much suffering comes from that knowledge, as opposed right. to you know? And then the other disanalogy, I guess, is that you know it's a little bit drawn out. There, it's not just that they're just like they're dead. You know, they have to donate a few organs, and but again, you know, that's that again might not even be something that's necessarily bad because they get a chance to reflect on their lives and and care for people. So I, I, I just, you know, it's a really beautiful, interesting book, and I'd love to talk about it. The the movie is good that Alex Garden Garland wrote. It's not a good movie to see right after you've read the book because at its best, it nicely captures a scene that you remember vividly from the novel. Uh-huh. And and then at its worst, it sort of gives too much exposition where the novel <laughs> didn't. So, uh, yeah. Have you read cool. it? No, not at all. Yeah, I'm not a big novel reader, not, not by design. So whenever there's a good one, I try to read it. Uh, so, yeah, I have a bunch of stuff to read. Um, this it so goes my, quick too. It goes down easy. This book. I just want to quickly point out because some people don't sometimes don't realize that for every episode that we do on our website, verybadwizards.com/slash/episodes/slash, and then the number of that episode is in this case it would be seventy. We put up links and notes to everything, well, almost everything that we talk about. So for all of these things that we're mentioning, we, we're going to have notes and links um, to buy them to read about them. Um, for instance, I have never let me go up on Amazon right now. My book is p- people perhaps know that I'm a, a fan of comics and I, I believe it. In fact, last time I recommended a graphic novel. This one is just what I really, if you have not read a comic book before, if you have not read or, or a graphic novel, whatever you want to call it, this is, uh, I think one of the most beautiful ones that I've ever read. It's called Day Tripper, and it's by two brothers, two Brazilian brothers, Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon. Don't ask me why they have different names. Brazilians are weird like that, as you know from soccer. <laughs> they just sometimes yeah. use one name. Um, just one name, right? Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And, they, and then they always just fall down. And, and then they totally control FIFA and make Argentina lose. But I won't get into that. Uh, this Day Tripper book. I, I sound like what it sounds like what I'm about to say is a horrible spoiler, but it's actually not. It's the premise. So this originally came out as a, as a, as a series, um, and then was collected into there. I think there's two volumes and there might be one. I think I'll, I'll link to a, a deluxe edition that has both, both volumes. Deluxe. You're like down to my part. My part of the deluxe edition. Um, (laughs) In Texas, we do a deluxe style (laughs) with our graphic novels. (laughs) Um, The art is is beautiful, um, uh, but the the premise is this: at the end of every chapter, um, which would have come out once a month. So, uh, if you had read the first time you got this, you you would read, you know, issue one. He dies at the end. The main character dies at the end, in fact, of every chapter. So he's um, like uh, Kenny from South Park? <laughs> he's like Kenny from South Park, except for every chapter, he dies in a different way and in a different point in his life. So you realize that what you're seeing, so the guy is is this name, 
Brad de Olivias Dominguez, and he is an obituary writer. And each of the chapters is a snippet of his life and what's happened throughout his possible entire existence. Sometimes he dies when he's an 18-year-old. Sometimes he dies when he's an old man. Sometimes he dies as a middle-aged man. Um, so he dies at different morning, at different moments in his life. And you, you come to sort of get a good picture of who this person is just from these possible existences. And I have to say, the reason that I, I love this book so much is I, I remember the first time I read it on an airplane, I was bawling. I mean, bawling. Like yeah. I had to put my sunglasses on because just existentially, it gives you, he's an obituary writer. He dies every time. People in his life die every time. He, sometimes he fall, he has the love of his life and they live this rich, wonderful life together. Sometimes he only meets this one person who ends up changing his life entirely. Sometimes he dies early before achieving his potential. And it gives you, it gave me two feelings. One, the bad kind of existential feeling that, that, um, you know, oh my God, we're all going to die. We all live these, you know, this, all of the things that happen in our life are, are so tenuous. So we never know, we never know when we're going to die. <clears throat> but that was the smaller feeling. The bigger feeling was the good one that you just get this sense that life is beautiful and it's a gift. Even though nobody's given us the gift, it, we've received it and that every moment that we live ought to be embraced because the knowledge that you might die and never fulfill all of the other stories that you could have fulfilled is a sad one, but it's such a real one that it means that you have to enjoy this part of your life. You have to, you just have to. And hear that (laughs) anti-natalists just don't get a dog. Um, It's nothing but world pain. (laughs) So a world uh, of awesome. Yeah. If if you guys have an iOS device, there's a program called Comixology uh, that you can read it digitally. But I really do recommend getting getting the the paper version. Um, yeah, the, the art, few the times that I've read graphic novels, I've always done it the paper editions, and there is just something nice about. Yeah, you know, read read your weekly Spider Man's on the on the iPad, but get the paper. It's really really beautifully done. I've given it to at least three or four people. I've bought bought my own version and then just felt the need to give it out and i'll probably none of those people is me although you did give me another different one that i really loved uh logic comics yeah logic comics well good pick all right i yeah no i'm definitely gonna check that out Uh, i I like those things that make you appreciate the moment to make you like treasure moments cherish moments if there's one thing i could change about myself it would be that i do that more you know? I know, and that you wouldn't fight with me. Okay, All TV right, show. Well, TV show. Last, uh, last thing, and then we'll wrap this, uh, wrap this mother up, as Queen Latifah says <laughs> in the, the the movie Hairspray. <laughs> and I don't even think that's exactly what she says. <laughs> I, I, for my TV show, it's actually a four way tie between shows that I believe no, we mentioned. Oh, come on. on. <laughs> No, Come it's going to be really quick. It's going to be the quickest one, I swear to God. <laughs> okay. It's going to be the quickest one. It's because I couldn't think of a really good one, you know, like that yeah. we haven't talked about or done to death. All right. I'm just going to say a really brief thing about any of them. You can come in. You hop on if uh, you want to say anything about these shows. Um, first one, 
I don't know if we've had an occasion to mention Louis C.K. on this podcast. He's a comedian and uh, someone that both Dave and I love and respect. And I'm joking. We've probably mentioned him. Uh, he's a bingo card. Uh, he's a bingo card guy. He he does a show, and judging by the ratings of this show, which are minuscule, many of you haven't seen it. It's available on Netflix. I think all the seasons but the last one are available on Netflix. And if you haven't seen it or don't watch it or only seen a couple episodes, it's one of the most philosophically interesting shows out there. There might be more philosophy in there than in, in most or all other shows. Um, but definitely than in this podcast. Yeah, and definitely <laughs> than in this podcast, but that's not saying very much. Some of the stuff that I've found interesting, I've probably seen almost every episode at least twice and many more than that. But some of the stuff that I find most interesting are... The, the, there's a there's a kind of running theme of him looking, him being hungry for community and connecting with other human beings in a kind of increasingly alienating world. And there's really nice episodes, the one where he goes to Miami, the one where his, his sister comes and she's pregnant, where he just makes a connection with another human being and, you know, and he, and he treasures it. And at the same time, he also sometimes pushes it away. So, you know, that, that's one theme. There's so many others. I mean, there's a lot of great singer, Peter Singer stuff, uh, on it. it it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fantastic show, really philosophically interesting. And I strongly recommend it. It's obviously one we've talked about a lot. Second one tied for first, which has also come up on the show is, is Deadwood, which is also a show about building a community. But this time it's really, it's, it's almost literally, they are literally building a community in Deadwood. And it's also the paradigmatic example, I think, of why if you want to, if you really want to embrace some sort of a th account or approach to ethics, it should be a virtue a based approach, a character based approach rather than a just a solely an act based approach because the, the the main character again another show that is very low rated and that isn't talked about in the same sort of breath as the sopranos and the wire and breaking bad which are which are fantastic shows to, uh, and I love them but this one is deserves a place up there with them. And a lot of it is due to this character, Al Swearingen, who, if you just tabulated his actions, both from like kind of deontological or, or utilitarian, if you try to sum up the rightness and wrongness of his actions, that would not be the right way to approach <laughs> how you think about that character. And really a lot of the characters on the show. It, it just shows how, they're, they're, you know, there's so much more to evaluating I, uh, a person yeah. than just the sum total of their actions. I want to make it just make a, a comment about this. Um, uh, I have a paper with Elizabeth Loftus and Caroline from a few years ago about how moral blame influences memory. So if you think a guy is a bad guy or he did a bad thing, and now I ask you to remember the severity of their acts, in this case, how much money they stole um, a week later, if he was a bad guy, you inflate your memory. Your memory inflates. You actually remember that he stole more than he actually did. Um, oh, yeah. This is, I've watched Deadwood three times. Yeah. The second and the third time, both. Uh, because I like Al Swearingen by the end. 
um, or somewhere in the middle. I think that he actually is really attempting to do well, even though it's it's a mis it may be misguided yeah. from some perspective. Um, I mean, the, yeah, right. He does some horrible things, and I and, and you I forget about those things. You forget about them. You totally <laughs> yeah. forget about them because you re you know. I remember what's his name the um being oh, real, yeah. just real bad guy. Um, yeah, you know, I have uh, no problem remembering the bad things that he does. Yeah, um, and his lackeys. So definitely, as a as a psychological theory, I think the character overwhelms my my. You know, it also like it, it's a testament to how much you kind of value integrity because this is a character, and and this is also true of the character played by Timothy Oliphant. You value that they're being true to who they are. And even when Swearingen's doing some bad things, it's still true to who he is as a person. Right. And so that's something that, I don't know, it doesn't remove the, the blame, but it mitigates the blame to, to, to some degree. Um, and, uh, so you're saying that, that, uh, he should be praised for his consistency. <laughs> <laughs> his integrity is the word that I would use. My third show is for those of you who can't shed that act-based approach yeah. to ethics. This is definitely the show for you, I think. Um, and it's also very low-rated, though critically acclaimed. It's The Americans. Have you watched The Americans? No, I keep wanting to watch that. I hear it's it's really good. And, you know, where there, I think, it, it, it really is about these sort of conflicting and sometimes incommensurable obligations and duties that it's about two a, a married couple who are russian spies living in america in the 80s in the early 80s you know reagan's america and you know working for the kgb and they are constantly facing these these conflicts their obligations to their family their obligations to their country to their mission their obligations to their friends and then also obligations to just their fellow human being even when they're on the enemy on the on the enemy side and there's always just really interesting interplay of these you know rossian duties that are clashing with each other and how they try to come to terms with it and try to resolve it and it's just really well done you know the music on the show is just fantastic great performances from the 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 mother especially god i'm blanking on her name what's her they're on season three now is that yeah and i actually haven't seen uh, i've only seen the first two seasons in the first episode of the third season carrie russell uh she's the she plays the mother oh. the wife and matthew riss uh rice i don't know carrie russell is fantastic matthew R riss or rice or however you pronounce it is very good and uh very good and the daughter, Holly Taylor, apparently she steps it up a little bit in season two, but in season three, she plays an even bigger role. So strongly recommended. It was one of those shows that people had talked about that I hadn't seen. And once I did, it was it's it's really cool to watch. Just quickly, it's Matthew Reese. And the reason that I am even bothering to to say it is because that is my mother's maiden name. That's yeah. a Welsh, my Reese, R-H-Y-S. Beautiful name. Rolls right I out wouldn't... the tongue like all of the Welsh names. Reese! <laughs> my last show I also think has briefly come up, but maybe only briefly. It's Sherlock, the British BBC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think this is very simply a fantastic glimpse 
I don't know how realistic it is or not, but uh, it's a it's a glimpse into the mind of a high-functioning sociopath, as Sherlock calls himself. And the only thing I'll say about it, Friday, this is a show that's a total pleasure to watch. Just a, It's a fun, it's relaxing in the sense that you don't have to like keep track of a long story there. It's not like Black Mirror where it rent, it, 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 it takes your insides and like stomps on them <laughs> right. uh, and just fucks you, fucks with your head. Uh, but it's it's fun, but it's also really cool. And there's this great scene in the third season where he has to give a rehearsal dinner speech for <laughs> Watson. And, you know, a rehearsal dinner speech is one of those things where you really normally – you make a lot of jokes. You make fun of the person. But then you're supposed – you know, it's supposed to be because it's usually one of your best friends that there's a lot of emotion and fellow feeling. And, you know, that sort of comes out in between all the jokes. But he doesn't really have access to that being a <laughs> sociopath and you know there's that's just a running theme in the show is how he deals with the fact that he doesn't he can't really connect with he doesn't have empathy in the sense of really connecting with other people's emotions or caring about their emotions uh and how they feel and yet you know somehow he's able to pull it off and give kind of a moving speech brought a tear to my eye yeah uh, so if you've ever, if you never thought that a sociopath could make you cry, <laughs> that you will. Yeah, it's great. unless it's. I mean, it's the best interpretation of of Sherlock in in my lifetime. I think. Um, yeah. It's obviously set in the modern era, um, but just so well done, so well done. Benedict Cumberbatch is so dreamy. Okay, I can't fucking believe that you did four. You're always. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be a fucking top episode if you didn't try. It's the only one, only category. Yeah. yeah, but you got three more. Um, you're just only trying to get one in my TV show is if there's only been one episode and I, I think that listeners of this, of this podcast will like it as much as I did. In fact, as the episode went on, um, I was liking it more and more. And by the time it was done, I had this feeling that I have not had in a long time, which is where is the fucking second episode? Make them, make it already. Hurry up because it is, it was, it was that compelling. Um, it's called Mr. Robot and it is a TV show that will be put on, uh, the USA network actually starting June 24th, which is of, as of the day we're recording is tomorrow. It will finally air on TV and they'll have a regular, they'll have it regularly. But what they did was they released, uh, uh, months ago. Um, the first episode on the internet, it's on YouTube. So we'll put a link to it. It's about loosely a kid who is, uh, works for a, a computer security company by day and is sort of a hacker by night. And the best way I think to describe it so far from the first episode is that it is a, it's sort of like seeming to be like a fight club, but with hacking. Um, because so much of what's going on is, you know, he seems like an unreliable narrator. Uh, he sort of, you find out in this first episode that he has hallucinations and delusions. Um, and so you're finding it hard to keep track of what is real and what is not. Um, but the plot point is that he is essentially t trying to take down a huge corporation that he he calls evil corp he's sort of a vigilante he's a he you see very close to the beginning of the episode that what he does by hacking is he 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 finds that 
a local business owner has actually been just serving up uh using his business to serve up kitty porn and he he discovers it and he call, you know he brings that guy to justice um christian slater plays this kind of crazy kooky oh like, where has yeah. he been yeah i know i know he's uh he's slowly turning into jack nicholson um he he plays this kind of kooky guy that you you don't know whether he exists for real or in his head or in the main character's head um but uh it's it's very compelling that one hour goes by so quickly give it the first 10 minutes it's weird the first 10 minutes you you won't you won't be sure whether what you're watching is the worst tv show or or just a really compelling one um but uh but it promises at least to be very interesting in in the sense of the character development as you find out more about the the main the main character who also is severely depressed but but does hacking but also seems to have something to do with ethics and the interesting question of whether or not it is justified to harm big companies that are doing something wrong by sort of gray area of the law taking is there any question about that i mean it's okay <laughs> yeah, yeah obviously yeah. we should applaud that you're right it's not there's not you don't feel too much ethics about it but what you do sense is that this kid is creepy sort of like you know you talk about sherlock and being mildly psychopathic right. this kid seems to be just creepy and one of the things that he for instance that he does is he finds people that he thinks are being just bad um and he just finds all the information that he can about them sort of internet stalking and yeah. follows them. And it's in a, a, a lot of what's great about this movie is that, that it doesn't try to portray hacking in any sort of super glamorous light. Like they're actually showing really, really boring computer screens of real code, real sort of um, terminal access points to servers, but it's still compelling. It's really, really, is it really like compelling. the WikiLeaks? Is it loosely based on the WikiLeaks guy? Or? Not, not, no, not so far. Not so far. It seems purely, purely fictional. If, if anything, he's just sort of on an ad hoc hacking by night to try to do something uh, good. Yeah. But he doesn't seem at first to be that good of a guy. People say that about Snowden. Right. That this is right. sort of interesting that some, when some of these people who do, Maybe things that you would agree are good are not right. doing them for the right reasons. Or, right? Do you yeah. have to be a good guy to to get rewarded for doing a good thing? Just a, an definitely thing. hipster. You you're all all four of your picks were very hipster. Uh, like you, you know, totally like I I concede the hipster. I'm not. I'm not a, they're not hipster at all. These are these are, I, they're not ironic. Mine was like the Big Bang Theory and <laughs> like twenty two. I was going to pick Street the transform. The first Transformers was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to toss in. Do you have anything extra to toss in? I just really quickly toss in uh, a podcast that I think that you might really like. This is um, a, a brand new podcast. The episodes are literally three or four minutes long. And it just happens to be a podcast. That was, <laughs> so not this one. Not this one. It happens to be a, a podcast that was started only as a side podcast by two guys who are on tech podcasts that I regularly listen, in, regularly listen to. Uh, it's called Robot or Not. And the only point of it is that one guy who is sort of really nerdy and very, very smart. Uh, his name is John Syracuse. Um, gets frustrated with the other guy for calling something a robot when it clearly isn't a robot. And so every episode is about a three or four minute conversation where the first guy says, is this a robot? 
they the nice thing is in the Tamlarian tradition, they refuse to give a list of necessary and sufficient conditions for what would be a robot because then the it would be a very no. But what are some of the things that either could or could not be robot? <laughs> Get the car from uh, Knight Rider. Is that a robot or is that just a computer? <laughs> uh, the latest episode or two episodes ago was a Roomba. Uh, self-driving cars. K9, the robot dog from a Doctor Who episode. Darth Vader, yeah. cyborg or, or robot? Is he how definitely much? not a robot? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of them is ATM. Roomba can go fuck itself. <laughs> it's very sort of like a, a parody of analytic philosophy. All right. Sounds good. I guess that does it. We got a tweet. I think somebody asked us to, if we had seen Inside Out and maybe to talk about it on the episode. You haven't. I have. Um, so we won't talk about it yet, but I did see it over the weekend. And my advice to our listeners is to temper your expectations a bit. It's, um, it's getting like I I went into it thinking that it would add layers of depth to my relationship with my daughter and 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 sort of change my life and and for the better because it it was getting such rave reviews and I and you know it, was, it just seemed like such an interesting idea and it's good but I would say temper your expectations <laughs> temper your expectations people I, I I couldn't I couldn't help being. You know, somewhere you between to, disappointed to very disappointed in it. <laughs> if you want to improve your relationship with your daughter, you should probably actually clap for her performance in the. It's uh, a, no, she she would think <laughs> she would immediately know that that somebody had had, 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 had bought it, hacked your brain, <laughs> hacked my brain exactly. No, my relationship with my daughter is great. It's just like I thought it would give us like a new vocabulary of ways to talk and stuff like that. And it definitely doesn't. And I don't know. There's a, it seems like a missed opportunity to some degree. Uh, maybe I, I need to see it again. Uh, I think my expectations were too high. They were just way too fucking high. I live moment. my life with low expectations and I'm always. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I definitely <laughs> don't. Uh, this is a common experience that I've had. <laughs> And hopefully your expectations weren't too high for this episode. And next time, I God, I swear to God, we're going to talk AI and Ex Machina once you see the goddamn movie. Yeah, you're going to be. I saw it. You'll be surprised at my. Opinion. Oh, you did. Yeah. You did not like it. Uh, Speaking I, of high, I, no, high expectations. I, I didn't dislike it. I just have very, very different view of what it was about. But um, like, we're we're going to talk about AI. Uh, um. And hopefully have my colleague Josh Weisberg on the show. So uh, I don't know if that'll be next time. And we're going to have Tej Rai on the show very shortly as well. All right. Uh, join us next time. Just a very bad wizard. <laughs>